Hello and welcome to this episode of the podcast, which is the first one I've been able to release in 2021. It's a new year and that brings new challenges, but also a lot of hope, I would say, after a very difficult time for all of us. If you write, I hope your writing is going well. And if you're a film fan, I hope you've discovered some new favorites during this time, because I think film really does bring a lot of joy into our lives. As usual, I hope to make things that little bit better in my own way by bringing you another fascinating conversation about story and writing. So this episode is going to be focused on the 2017 film version of Julian Barnes's novel The Sense of an Ending, which was written by Nick Payne. If you have ever thought about a book you've really liked and how it could be brought to the screen, I think you'll enjoy this discussion. We cover some of the challenges of adapting this type of narrative, and we talk in some depth about the potential solutions that were used in the sense of an ending to deal with the more complicated aspects of the book and make the story work on screen. Just to give you a bit of an overview, if you haven't seen it, or a reminder if you have, it takes place in London in the 2010s as a man of around 60, called Tony Webster, has to re-examine his memory after he receives an unexplained bequeathment in a will which turns out to be from the mother of his ex-girlfriend from his university days. He ends up getting in touch with his former girlfriend Veronica to try and find out why, and starts to discover that what he thought he knew about his best friend from his school days, Adrian, who killed himself around that time 40 years prior, is completely wrong. The entire story is told to us in Julian Barnes's novel directly by Tony, but in the film we are of course in the third person watching from the outside. So listen on to hear a bit more about this adaptation and how it changes the story for the screen. As usual, thank you again for continuing to support the podcast by listening. It really means a lot to me. Without further ado, let's get on to the episode. Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and I'm joined today by a special guest, Alistair Owen, who is a screenwriter, novelist, and author of the new Creative Essentials book, The Art of Screen Adaptation. Alistair, welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed. Pleasure to be here. So to start out, please just introduce yourself to the listeners and give us an overview of the new book, which I believe has just recently been published. That's right. Um, It it came out here in the UK um, in late August. It's um, an interview book, a book of interviews with 12 British screenwriters, um, although several of them have worked in Hollywood. And the specific focus of the book is um, screen adaptation. I've done three of these books before. I did a book of interviews with um, Bruce Robinson, who wrote and directed with Nell and I. Then I did a book called um, Smoking in Bed, Conversations with Bruce Robinson. Then I did a, a book called Story and Character, Interviews with British Screenwriters. That didn't have the same specific focus as this new book that was um, interviews with 10 top British writers. Then I did a book of interviews with the playwright and screenwriter and director, Christopher Hampton. Then there was a bit of a gap. And then we have this one, which is part of the Creative Essentials series. They came to me and they wanted originally a how-to book on screen adaptation. And I said, well, yes, I am a screenwriter. I am agented, but I'm not a produced writer. Therefore, I don't think I'm arrogant enough to write a book telling other writers (laughs) how to adapt. But what I will do for you, which is what I enjoy doing, and I have, you know, 
Bullman is I'll round up a dozen or so of the best writers in the country and I'll get them to tell other writers how to adapt. And that's what I did. And um, I'm really thrilled with the results. So I hope it's fair to say that you're someone who likes to spend his time talking about screenwriting. So I think you're in the right place because this is what I've been doing on the 21st rewrite for a couple of years now, talking about the iconic screenplays of this century and to break down what it really is that we enjoy about screenplays and how they function. And I'm certain that the listeners will be eager to hear what you have to say about this as you have this complete overview of adaptation from the work you've been doing. And I think it was really interesting, the topic you picked for this one as well, because obviously there's a bit of a British slant to not just the book that's just come out, but also the film we've decided to talk about as well. The Sense of an Ending, Ritesh Batra's adaptation of Julian Barnes's Man Booker Prize winning novel, which when you mentioned it to me, I wasn't really aware that there had been a film adaptation of it. This isn't something that really gets much press where I am now in the United States, uh, the latest adaptation of Julian Barnes, but I really, really enjoyed all of this process, revisiting the book that had a big impact on me the first time that I read it, and then also seeing how they went about trying to adapt a work of fiction like this one, because this term does come up quite a lot when we're talking about adaptation. That's the term unadaptable. And the sense of an ending is just something that is so rooted in its narrator's internal monologue and his sense of identity shifting with age and memory. This is going to be a great conversation for us to have about how do you go about adapting something like this? Maybe, maybe that is a good way for us to start. Do you think that there is such a thing as unadaptable for any type of material? I'm not sure I do. Um, I mean, I think it would probably depend on the medium being adapted. I mean, the range of things that, that would fall under the general heading of adaptation are pretty wide. Novels, short stories, plays, TV series, other films. So in, in cases of sort of, you might say, remakes or adaptations of, of foreign language films into English, musicals, graphic novels, newspaper articles, magazine articles. You could argue that real life, true stories, even if they're not actually based on an, an extant piece of uh, intellectual property, are also a form of adaptation. The, the Crown is, I don't know whether this is the case in the States, but it's the latest series of The Crown, season four, has caused quite a lot of controversy here in the UK because of the extent to which Peter Morgan is willing to diverge from documented fact for the purposes of compelling drama. Um, so and that, that's also a case of adaptation. It's what you put in and what you leave out and how you structure it. And so it's, it's quite a hard question to answer across that broad spread of things. More specific to, say, fiction, I think there's probably a way to adapt most books, if not all books, but it's really a case of how faithful you want to be to the source material. I mean, that that's mm -hmm. kind of, if you're talking about adaptation, Fidelity is really the first thing you've got to deal with. Interestingly, as I was researching this, there are some quite interesting interviews on the special features of the, the DVD of Sense of an Ending. Uh, there's an interview with the novelist Julian Barnes himself, in which he says, in his view, the best way to be loyal as a filmmaker is to be disloyal to the book. Yeah. He was interviewed on set and he seemed to be very happy with the way the film was going. He'd read the script. And it is quite a different proposition as a, as a film than it, it is to his book. We'll come to that in a minute. And the director, 
uh, Ritesh Bhatra had a very interesting line. He said, um, books and movies are cousins, not siblings, and you have to decide how close cousins they are. I mean, I can think of several instances of books that were considered to be unadaptable and adapted brilliantly to the screen. The one that immediately springs to mind is Patrick Suskin's novel Perfume, which was uh, first adapted into the film with uh, Ben Whishaw um, in the, I'm not quite sure when, mid-2000s maybe. And that novel was considered to be unadaptable because it is principally uh, a novel of metaphor, and the metaphor is scent. Conveying scent on the page when you've got the, the infinite possibilities of language is one thing, hard, but, you know, doable. Conveying scent on screen, um, you would you would sort of wonder how are they going to achieve that? Doubly so, since, as I say, scent in, in the book is, is a metaphor for love, effectively. The lead character spends the entire book killing women in order to capture their scent thinking that it's the scent he's trying to capture. It's not. What he's trying to capture is the one thing he can never capture, and that's love. Now, you put that in together into a, a, a script, and, you know, how is that going to work? The answer is triumphantly. I think it's an absolutely magnificent film, one of the finest films ever made. It's how, you, how do you convey scent? You convey it by the full panoply of things available to you as a filmmaker, editing, cinematography, sound. It's amazing how the use of sound, particularly in the opening of that film, can make you feel like you can almost smell what you're looking at. It's, it's a, that combination thing. It's amazing. And actually, metaphor works fine. It helps that he, they decided to use a voiceover, and there's a voiceover in Sense of an Ending as well, and that's something we should probably talk about as well, the decision yep. whether or not you use a voiceover uh, is one of the key ones with adaptation. So... So no, um, you know, obviously there are books that are much harder than others. Sometimes it's hard because of length. Um, sometimes it's hard because of content. But I think if you're trying to stay true to the spirit of the thing, but are willing to take risks with fidelity, then I think perversely, you can wind up with something that's very f- faithful to the spirit, even if it's very unfaithful to the letter. Yes. Yeah. Um I like the way you put that, the sense that there's a paradox there, but by engaging with that paradox, you find the solution. I think that's a good answer that covers all the bases. You probably mentioned all the different types of adaptation that there there can be. In this particular case, let's look at the sense of an ending as a novel. What it does as a work of fiction, I think, is it invites a reader into the personal realm of the narrator who is called Tony, uh, Tony Webster. He is the only person who we get to hear from throughout the entire book. It's quite a short story. It's on the shorter side of being a novel, a bit longer than a novelette, and really we are entirely dependent on him. But he's also very much interrogating himself throughout the story as to how reliable his own memory of past events, and um, he's writing something akin to a memoir, which is also partly true crime. Um, you, you can't really call it a murder mystery, because I think the murderer is, is evident. Um, who killed Adrian is Adrian, but uncovering the circumstances of Adrian's death, that's the main momentum of the story. Well, it's interesting. Both Julian Barnes and the screenwriter Nick Payne refer to it as a thriller. 
Julian Barnes says it's called it a psychological thriller. Nick Payne says it uses thriller mechanics. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're both right. It is. Um, it's a sort of thriller of memory. It's a man trying to work out what he did because he can't fully remember. I mean, the line in the book, um, I flagged a few passages because I, I think that they're really interesting to, to look at. Um, mm. This is actually one of the most quotable novels of the, the past 10 oh, years. Oh, it's marvellous. And, and uh, it's no surprise to me that Nick Payne chose to have a voiceover and chose to open the film with voiceover, although it doesn't open quite how the book opens because it is so quotable. Page 41, um, I must stress that this is my reading now of what happened then, or rather my memory now of my reading then of what was happening at the time, which sums up the book. Interestingly, the the film tagline, or at least the tagline on the DVD, is sometimes what we remember is only half the story, which is a nicely um, Hollywoodized version of the same thing. So... The thriller element, in a sense, it's it's a, it's what I would call an investigative plot structure. Um, he's he's digging into his past, uh, and it has suspense. Um, one of the reviewers, Anita Bruckner, in the Daily Telegraph, when the book first came out, like Henry James's *The Turn of the Screw*, which it resembles, its mystery is as deeply embedded as the most archaic of memories. So, thriller can you know can can cover a range of things and i think i think part of the reason why it is such a compelling film is because there is this mystery element albeit that it's a personal mystery mm. as you say a man digging into himself and mm. his own past and this leads to one of the things which is possibly the toughest part of the adaptation and of course that leads into the time old discussion that we always inevitably hear someone saying that a film is not as good as the book or that that's something that's um, often said by audiences, and so is its counterpart. I prefer the film to the book. In this specific case, it was always going to be divisive, wasn't it? Because trying to work around the challenges to bring this book to the screen, because something that is so much driven by a single narrator talking the entire way through and revealing this mystery on their own terms as it unfolds for him in his own voice, was always going to be hard when you're in the third person, when you have this detached view, you're separate, you've got the protagonist on screen. And yes, aside from the occasional lines of voiceover, it's very hard to get into his head. And I think Jim Broadbent, who is one of the most fantastic actors in Britain, is very able to convey some of those more subtle moments that are very hard to do visually. There's a moment, I think, when his ex-wife, they've met up for coffee and she stands up to leave and there's just a second or two where the camera lingers on his face and you can just feel things. Having read the book, you know the paragraph of internal monologue that he's conveying just with his eyes there. I think that was one of the real strengths of the film was to give it some of that space and also to not focus entirely on the memory game, I think it tried to step away from that a little bit and flesh out more of his life. Because one of the things that is very easy when you're being told a story by someone is to just go along with what they're telling you. But in the film world, you have to say, well, what does he do all day? Where does he live? I don't think it's even mentioned in the book where he actually works. So the film version had to fill in some of those details just to give him a place to fix him in a geographical location in London, that this is a real person, he goes to work, he's semi-retired, this is where he lives, this is where he goes 
out um, for meals, et cetera, et cetera. I think what you've put your finger on here is, is I think, one of the key elements of Nick Payne's adaptation um, and one of the things that makes it such an interesting adaptation is the extent to which they've had to flesh out and ground the character of Tony. You, you mentioned just now about the fact that, you know, it's a first-person narrative and therefore all you've got is him. And again, in the interviews on the DVD, um, the director mentions that specifically. And he, he says, in the book, that is all you have. You have to rely on Tony. In the film, of course, you have, as it were, other viewpoints. The film is still told from Tony's point of view. But those other viewpoints, in a sense, come through the relationships that that they've expanded from the book, particularly with um, Harriet Walter as his ex-wife, Margaret, and Michelle Dockery as his um, daughter, Susie. And uh, again, Ritas Bartram makes the point in the interviews that having those two characters there and having them more fleshed out than they are on the page, they can become critical characters. They mm-hmm. can ask questions of Tony, both factual questions and, you know, as it were, um, emotional questions. They can challenge him. And the reason for that, of course, and this absolutely also goes to the heart of, of the changes that you have to make. And I would say, I don't think it violates the book, but it does do something very different than the book. Again, if if you'll permit me, there's a, there's a passage I'd like to quote, because mm-hmm. I think, in a, in a way, Julian Barnes has unwittingly summed up the differences between um, novels and films. Page 103 Does character develop over time? In novels, of course, it does. Otherwise, there wouldn't be much of a story. But in life, I sometimes wonder. Our attitudes and opinions change. We develop new habits and eccentricities. But that's something different, more like decoration. Perhaps character resembles intelligence, except that character peaks a little later, between 20 and 30, say. And after that, we're just stuck with what we've got. We're on our own. If so, that would explain a lot of lives, wouldn't it? And also, if this isn't too grand a word, our tragedy. Now, does character develop over time? In movies, absolutely. The the, the character arc is at the core of commercial screenwriting. The character has to go on a journey. He has to change. And Tony in the book specifically doesn't really change. He is, broadly speaking, the same at the end as he was at the beginning. He's an average man. He's self-questioning. He has realized something about himself, but he feels it's too late to really do anything about it. It hasn't particularly, as far as one can tell, impacted on the relationships in his life. He is sadder as a result of it. In fact, the novel was originally entitled Unrest. And the reason for that is that early on in the book, when he's at school, uh, and one of his friends says, um, to characterize the age of Henry VIII, there was unrest, sir. Uh, and the teacher says, well, if you want to, you know, dig a di- bit deeper into that. And his friend says, there was great unrest, sir. And he returns to this, and it, that's, it's in the film as well. And the final lines of the novel, which I think are some of the most powerful closing lines of a novel I've ever read. Indeed, the, the, final, the final few pages of the novel are tremendously powerful and moving, as moving as the film. But I, I think also the film is tremendously moving. The final lines of the novel are, there is accumulation, there is responsibility, and beyond these, there is unrest, there is great unrest. Now, that is not at all the tone that the film ends up with. No. And the reason for that difference is because is because Tony is still more or less in the same emotionally 
hermetically sealed, stuck place at the end of the book than he was at the beginning of the book, which in a sense is the point Julian Barnes is one of the points Julian Barnes is making. The key change that Nick Payne and Ritesh Batra made in their film is is that he does change. Um, Nick Payne puts it very well again in one of those interviews. Um, he can't change what he did, but he can change. Well, this is sort of bit me and bit Nick Payne actually. He can't change what he did, but he can change who he is, and that's what that's the emotional pulse of the movie. In other words, by finding out more accurately what it was he did in his past and the impact that had on the people in his past, particularly his, his, his former girlfriend, Veronica. He is therefore able more to empathise with Margaret, his ex-wife, and Susie, his daughter, and therefore grow as a person. And the other addition you've got uh, is the fact that, um, so Susie in the book, she isn't really a character. He doesn't have a lot to do with her. Their relationship is okay, as far as you can tell. Mm-hmm. she's married, she's got two kids, she's settled, she doesn't really need him. In the film, she's a single mother and she's only just pregnant with her first and she relies on her dad as much as she does on her mum to um, help her through the pregnancy. She's, she's close to giving birth as the film progresses and the film ends with her giving birth. And so there's, there's this sense also of new, of new life, of new possibility, of new hope and that in relation to his ex-wife, in relation to his daughter, and in relation to his grandchild, that Tony is is going to be able to be a better person going forward than he was in the past because of what he's learnt in the course of the film narrative. And that is, it's radically different from the Julian Barnes novel. And yet, I believe it is true to the core of the Julian Barnes novel and winds up, therefore, being its own distinct work of art. You can take the two things separately, side by side each other. You, you can read the book and then watch the film. Neither detracts from the other. The film does not dishonour the novel in any way. I think it finds a shape and a narrative that works for commercial cinema. And personally, I mean, I've watched the film maybe four or five times now, and I have been in tears at the end every single time. I think it's a tremendously moving film. Uh, and, and to me, that's the best kind of adaptation. Another one for me is, and I, and I would have done this had it, had it not been before 2000, um, probably my, one of my favourites, if not my favourite screen adaptation, is The Remains of the Day, the Merchant Ivory film from Kazuo Shiguro's novel, which has similar issues of, of the film ends up in a different place tonally to where the book is. There are quite large changes but it is entirely, in my view, true to the spirit. And you wind up with two distinct works of art, neither of which detract from the other. And I think that's the absolute best kind of adaptation. I mean, I could name others until the cows come home. Both of Anthony Minghella's first two great adaptations, um, uh, The English Patient and Talented Mr. Ripley, are two very good examples of that. Yes, uh, both 90s films, but I did manage to cover never let me go on the podcast so we did get to do one Kazuo Ishiguro episode <laughs> um it's yeah a really phenomenal book that again is told in a similar way to this one there's a strong emphasis on trying to uncover the story through what the narrator is telling you in that story as well and quite rightly i think uh, Kazuo Ishiguro was awarded the nobel prize for being an absolute master of this style of writing well the, the, the remains of the day is is actually similar um 
I, I once saw Ishiguro interviewed at the Hay Festival, uh, the Hay Literary Festival, and he was he was d- charming and lovely and delightful and funny. And he talking about his first three novels, um, Remains of the Day was his third after um, Artist of the Floating World and oh, A Pale View of Hills. And he said when he finished writing Remains of the Day, it was very disappointing to him to find that he'd written the same novel three times, <laughs> but in slightly different settings. But that he may, I, I can't remember whether he said this or whether I thought it, but that with Remains of the Day, he'd finally cracked it. Um, but it is in the same way. It's about a man interrogating his past. The difference with Remains of the Day is that Mr. Stevens on the page doesn't realise he's interrogating his past until the novel is considerably further advanced, whereas Tony Webster, in The Sense of an Ending, is 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 very questioning right from the start that's that's the point but as you say it's quite a short novel sense of an ending but yes they, they, they are allied I think in, in the sense that Mr Stevens is discovering things about himself at the same pace as we the reader or the audience are and I think that's that's great for both prose and um, and film narrative actually keeps things really interesting yes I mean one of the things that I if, if I have criticisms of the film, I think my first criticism of it is that it struggles to contextualize the story about Adrian in the same way that the novel can do. And um, I think this kind of ties back into the idea that we don't really know with this novel how Tony is supposed to have been writing down this story. Is it something that he started writing once all of these events have transpired and he's gone back and then summarized it? Or is it more like a diary? With the end of each paragraph, is he going off and living more of his life and then coming back and writing down more of it in in that more stream of consciousness uh, sort of way? And um, what this does, I think, in the beginning of the novel is it starts out almost like a memoir. He's kind of saying... Well, let's start at the beginning, and the beginning is school. It's these very formative years. He's got his band of friends, um, Alex and Colin and himself, and they have created a little clique, a little group at this private school in that way that teenagers need to create a kind of group identity to, to kind of rebel against the uniformity that's being imposed upon them from especially the fact these these uh, three are at a private school very hard to be original and um, express yourself in those circumstances so what they've decided to do is turn their watches onto the inside of their wrists it's a little in joke and these things are very hard to convey on screen I think I know the the screenplay does make a passing reference here or there to it but those feel more like gifts to the readers of the book rather than something that might not might make sense to uh, someone who's just watching the film by itself. And by giving us this whole first section where we're just hearing about the childhood and about how Adrian arrived at this school and things that are very hard to convey on screen, uh, with The Watch, for example, Tony says... We all just we all carried on wearing our watches on the inside of our wrists, and we kind of hoped Adrian would pick up on this and do it himself, but he never did. And that's very hard to convey that on screen, isn't it? Like you'd have to really draw attention to it um, 
so in the end it gets it gets uh, discarded but there is always that sense in their group that there's something a little odd or a little off about Adrian um the, the three of them find it very easy to to get along they've known each other for longer and Adrian is kind of the black sheep of the group but they all respect him the arguments he puts forward in history class for example are things that resonate throughout the story and um, really set up this framework. And what we get with the film version is we start with Tony uh, receiving this letter from the solicitor. And that ties more into the thriller side of things and also the character arc side of things. The sense of, um, if you if you go back to maybe a hero's journey way of analyzing that it's, this is the call, is here is this letter, are you going to open it? And what happens when you open it? Are you going to investigate or are you going to run away? Of course, it's a film and character development needs to happen. So he's, of course, going to investigate this mysterious letter. But in the book, he doesn't get the letter until probably the midpoint, I would imagine, about halfway through. That is correct. I was just looking it, looking it up as you were talking there. Um, the book is in two parts uh, of unequal length. The first part is um, 56 pages. And the second part is about 100. And the letter itself, I believe, is not mentioned until more or less page 60 yep. odd. So we get his school days and then we also get his university experience and his relationship with Veronica. In other words, he's telling you how he came to be here, but we, the reader, don't really know why he's telling us this. Um, yes. Julian Barnes's prose is is so compelling and beautiful and thought-provoking, and he, he has the ability to cover huge amounts of ground in a very spare manner, but not in a way that makes you feel skimped. It's, it's, um, he, it's a phenomenal writer, actually. Yeah, it's very reminiscent of... Um... J.B. Priestley's Man and Time, which is an essay that's just compelling in itself, and therefore you just keep reading uh, because it's universal, I think. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, I, I mean, I think memory is fascinating in, in movies. Um, I mean, I can think of several just off the top of my head by writers that are in the art of screen adaptation. Um, uh, Jeremy Brock wrote the f- uh, film rewrote um, from Andrew Davis's script the film version uh, the first film version I gather there's due to be another one soon uh, of Brideshead Revisited and obviously Revisited that is all about memory and um, Lucinda Coxon who's in, also in the book um, adapted Sarah Waters fantastic ghost story uh, The Little Stranger which is also about memory uh, and as a sort of unreliable narrator someone sort of withholding as much as they're telling and coming to terms with with things um so it's a fascinating driver for for a narrative but structure i think was one of the things i was looking at as i was watching the film last night how did nick Payne choose the order in which to do this and obviously you know you're right the letter arrives pretty swiftly albeit that they employ a rather nice device which is it takes him a little while to actually open it. He keeps getting interrupted by other things, including having to do stuff for his daughter. And then later on, when Veronica, played by Charlotte Rampling, 
gives him this letter that he wrote to her and, and Adrian after they had become an item after she had split up with Tony. This angry, bitter, nasty letter that he had completely forgotten writing. They do the same thing. He, he gives it to him, but then he doesn't really get round to reading it until later in the day because of other things that have gone involved. So there's sort of a, an equivalent of, of, of the withholding, but but not to the same extent. But what Julian Barnes is able to do is, uh, he, is he lays out the groundwork. He does, as you say, he introduces Adrian at school. And it's funny what you're talking about, a gift to the readers of the book, because it's easy to forget that if you've read a book and you love a book, and you then come to the film, especially if you come to it with a generosity of spirit, you will be aware of things. And, and if, if, if the writer hasn't made such swinging changes, that the things you're aware of are no longer relevant. That's not the case here. Quite a lot of what you will know from reading the book is absolutely still relevant to the adaptation. Mm-hmm. So it's actually slightly hard for me to... It's interesting for you to hear you say that about Adrian and, and us not knowing as much about him and him being quite as fully contextualized on screen as he was on the page because that had never occurred to me until you just said it but you're right what they do do however which i think is fascinating is they have sacrificed certain chunks of the novel relating to school days particularly a, a visit in fact i think this happens after they left left school when tony is still going out with veronica he's at one university bristol i think and um Adrian's in Oxford and his other friends, Alex and Colin, are are similarly scattered. And they all get together in London because he wants to introduce Veronica to them. And this is a trip that they later discuss. And it's the first time that Veronica meets Adrian. And the way she reacts to him on that that visit, sort of one day they spend in London as as a group, is, is interesting retrospectively. And that, that's gone. It is mentioned in, in the film and it is mentioned in the course of one of uh, two or three completely new scenes involving Tony's friends grown up. Mm-hmm. Now, they're lovely, lovely scenes. I, I absolutely adore them. And he, he meets up with them and they help him get in touch with Veronica via Friends Reunited or Facebook or some piece of technology that he doesn't he understand. But also, it's funny the way they the, the way they are as as older men meeting up, um, and, and it injects some humour. There is more humour in the in the film version than there is on the page. There is humour on the page, but it's it's very dry. And there is more in the film, uh, largely through these scenes. And of course, that's part of the process of giving him a life, as you said earlier, grounding him. What does he do? Well. In, in the book, he's retired. He, he, he volunteers. Uh, he does some charity work. In the film, he has his little camera shop. And the first camera that was given to him, incidentally, the first Leica, he specialises in Leica cameras. The first Leica camera he had was given to him at university by Veronica. That's not in the book. So once again, we have this sense that he has something in his life that is a, as a result of this uh, much earlier thing, that, that, that there is a a pleasure to be had from that that he doesn't necessarily realise at the start. But bringing his friends in as, as older men is part of that process of giving him a fully rounded life, other characters to relate to. And it's in the relationships between characters and the interaction of Tony with other characters that you see him change, which you could argue is one reason why he doesn't change so much, if at all, in the book, because he's not actually interacting with anybody. Yes. He initially interacts with Margaret, his ex-wife. But then at a certain point, 
as she does in the film. She says, you're on your own, Tony. And in fact, in the book, he really is. She doesn't basically enter the novel again after that point. He refers to her, but um, she she doesn't re-enter in any significant way. Susie isn't in it at all. His friends aren't in it at all. He doesn't appear to have any other, you know, his life really is, as um, as Nick Payne put it in one of those interviews, hermetically sealed. And they have unsealed it for the for the film. And I think they have unsealed it in a in a delightful, realistic, funny, moving way, which I still think is it's drawing things out of. I don't think there's a single thing other than her pregnancy in the film that is not drawn in some way from a cue that is given in the book. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean by it's a different kind of fidelity. But Nick Payne hasn't gone off on one. He hasn't, you know, he hasn't introduced an elephant or something. It's 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 all there on the page if you want to tease it out. And in a sense, I suppose you could argue that Nick Payne has, has teased out from the book uh, uh, a narrative in a different way, but an allied way to the way Tony teases out a narrative of his own in the course of the novel. Well, I do think that part of this conversation, what we're doing underlying just discussing this book is we're going to try and answer that question that your publisher had also posited to you at the beginning of your latest project, which is how do you write an adaptation? I think one of the things that is very important to remember with this is that things like writing letters work very well in a book, but it doesn't work on screen. And so some of the changes made in this adaptation are to basically bring into the real world an interaction that just took place on the page. So there's very simple things. Um, Why are Colin and Alex not in the book when they're older? Well, Tony writes, I didn't want to bother them. I didn't think I'd get anything out of this. I didn't want to complicate things. He dismisses the whole idea, and that kind of ties into his character. But of course, what actually happens with getting in touch with Jack Veronica's brother Jack, is that he manages to get in touch with him and talks to him entirely over email. So it's not done in a way that you can dramatize through an interaction with the other person. Well, again, this is this is where that the scene with his friends is, and it's beautifully shot as well by by Richard Spartra, who, by the way, this isn't this is sort of not relevant to adaptation, but it is something I believe quite strongly, uh, and it's something that Nick Payne mentioned in in the in his interview. Um, Richard Bartra is one of those directors who will, he doesn't seem to shoot more coverage than he needs. He will find what the best shot is to tell the story of the scene, and he'll stick to that. M. Night Shyamalan is the master of this, or used to be the master of this. Um, And the scene where his friends are helping him, Tony's friends are helping him track down an address, um, that... It's very direct and immediate, um, and it's shot from behind the computer screen. Looking, mm. so you're not seeing, you're not attempting to. I always hate it when you have inserts of people typing stuff. It's never interesting. You never see it long enough to understand what it is. But to do it this way, to be looking past the computer screen, the back of the computer screen, the three of them, and reacting to what it is they're typing and laughing and joking. It's it's a brilliant, brilliant little scene. That's kind of in parentheses, but. That is a good example, of, as you say, of dramatising a moment where your his means of moving his investigative structure forward on the page is, as you say, letters and emails, whereas you've got to find a slightly different way of doing that 
on screen. Also, his own solicitor features in the, in the book. He's, he's cross enough by... So, to contextualise, Veronica, his ex-girlfriend, her mother has died in the book uh, and the film and has left Tony a small amount of money, a letter, and what turns out to be um, his friend Adrian's diary. But she refuses, Veronica, as executor of her mother's will, is refusing to let Tony have the diary. In fact, she claims she's burnt it. What she does give him is this letter that that Tony had written to her and, and Adrian. And in the book, Tony is irritated enough by the withholding of this document that he consults his own solicitor. Yeah. Um, in, in a rather nice little piece of conflation, which, of course, is something else you have to do as a screenwriter. You have to take three characters and turn them into one. He has given the, as it were, legal advice element to Tony's ex-wife, Margaret, played by Harriet Walter, who is also a, a QC. And that's a, that's a beautiful piece of compression. I mean, why wouldn't you do that? There's another one in um, in Remains of the Day. Sorry to digress, but the American who has bought the house in Remains of the Day, the novel, is not the same American who was the American congressman at the, at the peace conference in, in, in the book. In the film, they conflated the two characters so that the um, American congressman loved the, the house so much that he has bought it and so meets Mr. Stevens again all these years later. And that's a beautiful piece of screenwriting. It's so beautiful, a piece of screenwriting. I occasionally wonder whether... Kazuo Ishiguro might have watched that and thought, damn, I wish I'd thought of that because that's, that's better than what's on the page. And I, those moments are really lovely when you think you've managed to kind of double your money there. You've yeah. given a money to Harriet Walter as his, and which works perfectly. I'm not sure you, you know in the book what Margaret does. For her to be a QC is so perfect for Harriet Walter. You can so imagine her as this incisive, forensic um, takes no shit kind of uh, barrister it's, it's, fa- it's fantastic it's a lovely little piece of screenwriting yeah no that's exactly that's exactly right it's just how you make these scenes into something that's visually and dramatically appealing it's something i was talking to david rabinowitz about when we talked about black landsman because you know one of the most exciting parts of black landsman of course is when ron stolworth calls up david duke the head of the KKK, and they're on the telephone to each other, and the whole joke is there. The whole, the whole concept of the movie really is in that phone call, which is that David Duke doesn't know he's not talking to a white nationalist. He's actually talking to a black undercover cop. But of course, what is usually the wrong way to go about it in adaptation is to include that phone call when it is a phone call and especially to include a letter when it is a letter because they're not usually appealing on screen. And in the sense of an ending, so much of the correspondence with the lawyer is done through letters. Yes. Which is probably the way it really goes in real life. But, of course, what we have in the film is we have Tony going into the lawyer's offices in London. Yes. You can see how small and powerful he is up against a big legal firm. You can do all these things. You can take some of these conversations with his ex-wife that might be done on a telephone and put them in a room together instead. You bring his friends back and you have him actually meet up with them and you have them show him how to use Facebook or whatever it is they use to track someone down because everyone's contact details are available online if you know how to look for them. And so these solutions are really a key part of adaptation. 
I think with this particular book, some of the things that I would probably have struggled with are the communication stuff, but I can see how you go about solving that. And the other thing I would have got wrong is the ending. I would have dropped it on that last note in the pub where he realizes what's happened, and that would be my ending. Uh, the film instead, you know, it goes on much longer. And that would be an ending. That would be an ending that would be more congruent with the novel, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, but it is clearly not an ending that would chime with the arc that Nick Payne and Ritesh Bhatia have set up. They have set up a redemptive arc for Tony. And so you could see that final scene working, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't complete the story they were telling, which is different from the story Julian Barnes was telling. Yeah. And it would have been uh, less satisfying for the audience. And also, I think, uh, I mean, it is, I'm slightly mystified as to why this film didn't make more of an impact. You know, you said right at the start that you hadn't, you didn't even know there was a film of it. And it's a book you obviously knew already and thought very highly of. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what kind of release it got in America. Um, it's the kind of small British literary adaptation that I, I think we have got incredibly good at. Ian McEwan did pretty much two of them in one year, um, The Children Act and uh, On Chesil Beach. And they're, they're these both actually from novels about the same length as Sense of an Ending, which I'm starting to think is the absolute ideal length to adapt for the screen, about 150 pages. The cutoff point for, an, for the novella novel cutoff point, I think, in the publishing industry is about 40,000 words. And I think Sense of an Ending is about 50, as is On Chesil Beach, as is The Children Act. And they're kind of like these beautiful portrait miniatures. But um, no, I mean you could have ended it there, but I, that that wouldn't that wouldn't quite have um, that wouldn't quite have tracked through. I think, um, yeah. and I think the ending is so important, and and it is so moving an ending. And this is why I'm mystified as to why it didn't it didn't break out in the way that a lot of literary adaptations had. I mean, I think it's probably worth. This is just my feeling, but. There was a period when a lot of high-end literary adaptations were doing very big box office and, and were the thing. And kind of the English patient pretty much kicked that off. Yep. You've, you've mentioned Mingala earlier today. And, exactly. Uh, I mean, he really, with those two adaptations, he, did, he was willing to take big, make big decisions, big changes to the source material, again, in a way that I think completely honors the source material, but brings something completely new to the table. Several of the um, one of the questions in the art of screen adaptation I asked of all the interviewees was: Are there any other adaptations you particularly admire? And um, Mingella in those two films came up several times. In the case of the English Patient, the big decision he made was to what I would call reverse the polarity of the book. In the book, the story of the patient is the front story, and the story in the desert, the kind of Lawrence of Arabia love triangle bit. Um, is the backstory, the sort of in the background, as it were. He has shrewdly realised that he has an opportunity here to do a kind of old-fashioned, out-of-Africa-style epic, not much seen anymore, and was lucky enough to have people willing to back that. Um, and he has brought that to the fore and pushed the English, the story of the patient, it more into the background as more like a, um, a structural, um, something to structure the piece. Similarly with um, Talent and Mr. Ripley, what he brought to the party there was, I think, emotion, um, highly regarded as Patricia Highsmith is, and that book in particular. It is a very cold novel. Um, Ripley is a sociopath from page one. It's, it's about 
how he's going to wriggle his way through this particular Swiss watch plot that she's constructed for him. Ripley in Mingella's film is a totally different proposition. It took me a couple of viewings to really realise it, but Ripley is not a... I don't think he is a sociopath at the start of the film. He certainly has it within himself to be one. He's a bit of a chameleon. But actually, all he really wants through the entire course of the novel... uh, Sorry, the entire course of the film, which is certainly not the case in the novel, is a bit like the Ben Wishaw character in Perfume. He's desperately seeking love. And the irony is that the one person who end, ultimately ends up loving him is is someone he then has to kill because of the, the plot he's constructed around himself. So what Mengele brought to the party there was a well of emotion and loneliness in that character that I just don't think is there on the page. Um, and I think that's fascinating. And, and those kind of films seem to reach an audience. And, and I think Sense of an Ending deserved to reach a very wide audience. And I don't understand why it hasn't. Because I think it's a tremendous film. You don't need to have read the book in order to understand it. Yes, it has quite a complicated structure. Yes, it's dealing with quite grown-up themes. But at the same time, it's also dealing with age and memory and regret and trying to put things right and reconnecting with friends and family and trying to make something of the rest of your life. And what is not to love about that? I, I, you know, the comparative box office obscurity of certain films always mystifies and upsets me and and I I love this film enough that I just I don't get it I just don't get it well I think one of the ways to respond to that is to keep on championing it there's a lot of noise nowadays with the sheer number of releases and I think that is becoming much tougher to break through considering that now everything is available in the same format it's all in the same place with this shift to streaming yes and then there's the question of timeliness things that are timely tend to make a bigger impact on the news cycle and then there's the things that last and we'll see if this one lasts or not i think it's one that people will discover you know here in the, in um in the uk on on bbc iplayer and um you know on the streaming and i think uh, i think people will find it and they will watch it and they will recommend it i hope um, and maybe it will drive people also back to the book. I, I, I've read the book as often as I've watched the film. I, I don't think I have many other books I've read as often. And again, that's partly its length. It's very easy to to speed through. But it is a masterpiece. And I think the film is also a masterpiece in its in its way and, and does sit alongside the novel. The sense of an ending is almost cyclical, isn't it? it it's like one of those albums where the last second of music ties into the first second. So if it's on repeat, it would seem like it's on an endless loop. Yes. So yeah, the the sense of an ending you could, I, I guess say ironically is in that way, doesn't have a full ending. It just has greater understanding. So you could then go back to the first page and go through it again in a way that you probably wouldn't want to with most traditional thrillers, because the idea is, well, I figured out the mystery now. Yes. It kept me entertained until I found out what happened. But actually, in this particular case, just finding out what happened is step one. Then you can say, now I know this story. Now I know what happened to Adrian. And, of course, Tony's whole experience of this is to reevaluate who this friend was and what he thought of this friend, to think his suicide was, I think... One of his friends describes it as positively Roman. In in some ways, that 
does define the character who is classically educated, a brilliant mind, and too intelligent. Um, I think it was Tony's mother who is not a character in the film. She described Adrian as being too intelligent, if you know what I mean. Yes, that's right, Um, yes. Which is a very British way of putting something. It, It might not translate if you're a listener who is not British. To say someone is too intelligent is almost to suggest that it kind of ties into that sense that Tony has that you shouldn't upset too many things in life. It's too risky. Take the easy path every time. Don't draw attention to yourself. Well, being intelligent carries with it too many risks. Look what happened to him. He was too smart for his own good, and he ended up killing himself. That that whole attitude is quite recognizable folk wisdom. And Julian Barnes obviously has a brilliant insight into the collective British psyche by adding details like that. I think that's very shrewd, actually. Um, and as we're talking, I, I suppose... I suppose Adrian is perhaps, one way or another, the character who emerges least fully formed into the adaptation. Uh, you might make an argument, I suppose, that in the film, Adrian serves more as the trigger for Tony to reevaluate himself mm. and is therefore sort of not reduced to a plot point, not remotely, but is part of an engine that is driving the redemptive arc. Whereas in the book, which doesn't have that same engine, Adrian is more is more present. He suffuses the book, even when he's not being described in an, as in an actual scene. The whole thing is, and that contrast between the two of them that you've just pointed out, uh, actually, that Tony has in some senses lived the kind of cautious life as a safe option, whereas Adrian never took the safe option. Adrian so never took the safe option that ultimately, as is foreshadowed early on um, in one of their conversations as school kids, um, he says something about um, the only true philosophical question is whether or not to kill yourself, and ultimately he does. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, that line is in the film. Quite a lot. It's, it's very little has actually been, other than that trip to London, has genuinely completely been omitted. But as you say, you can emphasise things on the page that's harder to emphasise um, on screen. I think philosophy particularly. I mean, Julian Barnes as a writer, in, in the same way as um, Ian McEwan particularly, is a very philosophical novelist. Mm-hmm. Their, their novels, yes, they're novels of nar- narrative and they're novels of character, but they're also novels of ideas. And, and that sort of intellectual sense of reading something that's interrogating an idea or ideas, that is quite hard to do on screen because screen is a narrative engine. Jeremy Brock talks about this in the book, that anything that is not driving the story forward, generally speaking, has to go. Now, you probably could have conveyed a bit more of that psychological underpinning if you'd had more voiceover. But actually, I think Nick Payne's use of the voiceover is is sparing uh, he uses it when he needs to, to sort of set up sections of the film or draw threads together. I think it's beautiful, and mainly he's used the words in the book. But uh, yes, and now I'm thinking about it, and it doesn't bother me particularly, but then maybe it doesn't bother me because I, I've read the book and I have that in my head. So it's almost like 
the backstory that the screenwriter writes that never makes it onto the screen. But for a, for a, and actually then for an audience that hasn't read the book, and let's not, you know, let's be honest, even a man Booker Prize winning best-selling novel by a, a, an acclaimed author like Julian Barnes, if you compare the number of people that would have read that, compared to the number of people who will see even a, a moderately unsuccessful or uh, uncommercial film or will see something on a TV screening. I mean, it's, it's really <laughs> minuscule. So most people won't come to it with this knowledge that we have, you know, what Adrian was like on the page. They'll come to it on its own terms. And I think on its own terms, it, it works fantastically well. And I think, I think it's worth saying that as a general point, actually. You said earlier that a lot of people approach uh, adaptations and they're doing that compare and contrast in their head if they've read it and I, I I feel more strongly now than ever because of having done this book that that is on the whole a mistake I'm guilty of it I have been guilty of it I won't name any of the ones where I've just you know fulminated in rage having seen the adaptation and there are still a few which I just think are indescribable and unjustifiable but on the whole I think the question has to be, and, and William William Boyd said this in Story and Character. He's the subject of my next book, in fact, the novelist and screenwriter William Boyd. The question has to be, does it work as a film? And if the answer to that question is yes, I was, it, was in, it was entertaining and engaging, well, then job done. It really doesn't matter what was, what was cut from the book, what was reshaped, what was left out. If you're dealing with a, a novel that's considerably longer than Sense of an Ending, then, you know, a 350-page novel, a screenplay is about 120 pages with a lot of white space on the page. You've got to make some fairly substantial cuts and you're going to lose something that somebody's going to love. And also, of course, the other thing that will drive fans of the books up the wall is not only have you cut stuff that they love, but you've probably had to invent new stuff in order to link together the things you've left in. You've left that out and you've put this new thing in that wasn't even in the book. What are you doing? But as Julian Barnes says in, in the interview on the DVD, the book is still there. It's not going away. You just go back to it. It's not as if the film has erased every copy of the book. And then, of course, there's another level that I've come to realise since doing the book, which is um, that people sometimes get cross about adaptations. This doesn't apply so much to modern novels. But if you're adapting something that's been adapted many times before, Dickens, say, it's not necessarily that the people that are getting upset about the adaptation have actually read the book that the thing is based on. What they're getting upset about is the fact that it doesn't match the previous adaptations of the book that they loved. So that's like it one removed. Um, and you've got to take account of that too, but you know, not in this case. I think one of the benefits of adapting a, a more recent book is that you don't have that weight of previous adaptations behind it. You can approach it you know, relatively fresh. Yeah, I agree. One one of the things that happens in the book that I think is very difficult for them to do in the film adaptation as well is that something I guess is quite common to a lot of thriller stories is that the answer is always staring you in the face, but it's so enigmatic at the time that you can't understand it until you have all of the information. Yes. And there's this additional page of Adrian's diary which doesn't make it into the film, but it is a key part of the book. Um, I think it appears around the midpoint, which is when the mystery of the story starts to really be highlighted. So Veronica sends him what, this one page of Adrian's diary, which technically explains everything, 
But the first time you read it, you absolutely cannot understand it. And neither can Tony, because it's Adrian writing out everything that happened in his philosophical, um, almost Bertrand Russell-like way of pure philosophy, which can all be reduced to mathematics and logic. So he's summarized everything that happened, but in the form of an equation. And therefore, the answer always was staring us in the face. Absolutely, yes. And because of this clue being a page-long diary entry, the adaptation has to find other ways to do that. So, for example, the letter that Tony sent when he was very angry at Veronica and Adrian, in the book, I believe, he describes that as something he wrote when he was quite drunk, and therefore that part of his memory has been erased. So we don't relate to that. We witness it in the third person, and it's evident what happened. And instead, in the film... The thing he's really forgotten is the fact that he was the one who introduced Adrian to Veronica, and therefore also to Veronica's mother through that chain of events. That was something that he was quite aware of in the book, but seemed to have forgotten in the film. That actually, that actually makes a lot of sense for his character, because he felt so jealous, he felt so threatened by Adrian, and was constantly comparing himself to him. He went to Bristol and got a 2-1. Adrian went to Oxford and got a first. Those things that revealed just how petty Tony was, uh, and still is, that frustration of, at certain aspects of life. This is working around the same mystery, but in a different way. And I think instead of Adrian's letter, what you get is a lot more time with the mother, Veronica's mother, on, on screen to suggest something enigmatic. The answer that's staring you in the face in the film, is the way that she acts and behaves. Yes. And the whole family, actually, the way Brother Jack is brought into it as well with these curious, loaded lines of dialogue that don't have a parallel in the book. So instead we get scenes where Tony gets to know Veronica's family, but you don't understand them at the time. You just know something is odd about the whole thing. Eventually you come to understand that Adrian, in the same environment, leads to the events that culminate with his suicide. Jack makes a comment about, uh, I think it's raw meat, as they're standing uh, up in Tony's bedroom, staring out of the window at the mother. And that that's that moment. That's when it's staring you in the face, I think. There is something... Um, yes, you're right, there is a difference there. And I think it's helping to explicate you know, who was this woman that Adrian unexpectedly fell for? The notion that Adrian went to see Sarah, Veronica's mother, because Tony had suggested in his angry letter that he do that in order to get a proper sense of who Veronica was before committing to her and therefore is responsible for Adrian and Sarah being together and Sarah getting pregnant and Sarah having this, this child uh, and everything that unravels from that. It's fairly enigmatic on the page, to be honest, and it's quite a it's quite a difficult piece of plotting to get across on the screen. You're absolutely right about that page of the diary, which she doesn't she doesn't even give him. It's a two stage process in the book. First, she gives him this page from the diary. Then she gives him the photocopy or the original copy, I can't which of his of his letter. The film misses out the diary page because. How would you do it? Um, you'd have to have it read out. It would be it would be very abstruse. 
and these kind of things that that are sort of literary devices and that's a literary and a philosophical device so that's that's from a film perspective that's almost impossible and this sort of this ambiguity in a sense of an ending around the precise sequence of events veronica leaving tony taking up with adrian tony initially writing a kind of jaunty postcard which he remembers and then this nasty letter which he hasn't and suggesting in that letter that Adrian go and see Veronica's mother Sarah and Adrian then subsequently doing that and that leading to that relationship and the child and that is quite a lot of stuff and even on the page, it's ambiguous. So trying to tease out that precise, and none of it happens on, almost very little of that actually happens on the screen. So I mean, it's interesting now that we're talking about it. I, I know I've, I said I've read the book four times. I've seen the film four or five times. I think I, I now I want to read the book again, and I want to watch the film again in order to in order to look at these these bits relating to this this bit of the plot and Adrian's role and. And, and what is explicit and what's not fascinating. And that is a sign, I think, of a fantastic book and a fantastic film that I would want to go back. I mean, obviously, I'm a bit nerdy when it comes to adaptations, but I would want to go back and do that compare and contrast. And I think that both pieces of art would stand up to that compare and contrast and it would enrich your experience. Yeah, um, I think we've covered a lot of uh, what I wanted to talk about. So I'm just thinking what we might do next there is perhaps just one thing i'd like to add which occurred to me when you were talking earlier which is that julian barnes doesn't provide a kind of explanatory frame to the book anita bruckner compared it with um turn of the screw now of course turn of the screw features a framework as does interestingly susan hill's uh, the woman in black whereby the main story is being told as a story at a sort of a country house or at Christmas or as a gathering, let me tell you this story, and then you go into the main story. Now, both versions of The Woman in Black, the TV version and the film version, have dropped that framing narrative. Most adaptations of The Turn of the Screw drop that framing narrative. But the framing narrative in those in those books is the novelist's way of addressing why is this being written? Now, of course, as a novelist, you can very reasonably take the decision not to ever explain that. And Julian, that's the decision Julian Barnes has made here. It's not a diary. It's not consciously he's writing this for someone to read. It's more like, as you say, almost sort of, isn't, but it's not stream of consciousness. It's more crafted than that. One thing the film does, and I'd forgotten that it did it until right at the end. In fact, I forget it does it until right at the end every time I see it. And I'm pleasantly surprised every time I see it is that the voiceover is used sparingly enough that when you get to the final bit of it, uh, which comes right at the end and Charlotte Rampling is reading a letter and Tony has sent her a letter, clearly, if I'm interpreting it right, the voiceover, the pieces of voiceover that you have heard, which come directly, most of them from Julian Barnes's text or variants thereof, you're meant to assume is, is all Jim Broadbent's letter because you finally see her, the final piece of voiceover comes as she opens up this letter and it's addressed directly to her. And I think that's rather lovely. Again, though, it's congruent more with the story they wanted to tell on screen, which is kind of more complete, more emotionally cohesive, more emotionally explicit uh, is the word, that, the phrase that, that Nick Payne again used in, in the interview. And you don't need that on the page. You don't need to know why Tony's writing it. But to give you that explanation of why Tony has been telling us these things, 
that he has written this this kind of okay I, I realize now what I did and the impact that had and hopefully I can be a better person because of it I mean <laughs> someone less sentimental I suppose than me might get to that <laughs> scene and, and think that's a bit on the nose he's kind of summing up his whole character arc in this letter but I, I'm I've got a very tidy mind and, and actually I think it's beautifully done and you don't know whether necessarily Charlotte Rampling is going to go along with this but you you definitely sense that again Nick Payne referred to it beautifully in one of his interviews he's uh, in the interview on the DVD it's a coming of age story about a man in his 60s and I thought that was lovely what a beautiful description of the film and that's exactly what it is and in order for that he has to come to that self-knowledge and, and it is genuine self-knowledge and I think if you view the film in that regard in that way coming of age story about a man in his 60s which is not what Julian Barnes is doing but nonetheless Nick Payne has taken the Barnes as his jumping off point for that um, then I think the film becomes kind of that that sort of frames the film if you like in a way that I think is very is very useful and very succinct and, and very moving and the other thing I think about the film I love movies that are about an hour and 45 minutes it's perfect length for a movie it's it's just long enough to get you into it not too long that you get bored it is the right length for a book of this length it's it's what i said it's like a portrait miniature children act is the same on chisel beach is the same this seems to be they might not go on to big commercial success necessarily but this kind of very precise yet deeply emotional british literary adaptation i think is something we absolutely excel at and it's partly because we've got great writers like Julian Barnes and Ian McEwan. Julian Barnes chose not to adapt his book. Ian McEwan has more recently chosen to do the job himself. But um, I, I could, in that thinking, I could do an entire book on just on appreciations of British literary adaptations. Yeah. Just this generation of writers and the stories they've given us and the ones that have been brought to the screen and the ones that are yet to be. Uh, so just going, focusing now on redemption, one thing I wanted to look at here is redemption, because of course, as, as you mentioned, if this is a letter to Veronica, then that does serve as the act that he must do to redeem himself. It's an apology. It's long overdue after something like 40 years. So it's an apology, but it's four decades late. With the context of Adrian's diary entry, which isn't actually in the film, but uh, you know, I hope we've explained that well enough for the listeners. Um, I'll try to be really clear for you at home to make this part make sense. He left an equation trying to figure out each part that each of them had to play in the sequence of events that ended with Sarah getting pregnant and therefore the birth of Adrian's son. So we don't really know the precise date that Adrian killed himself. We don't know if he was aware if Sarah was planning on keeping the child. It was kind of suggested that he committed suicide before that. But he's trying to figure out how far this chain goes back. And so the first letter A in his equation, its algebra, is Antony. And then there's a V for Veronica. And the diary entry ends with a line, Therefore, if Tony... And then the page ends, and we don't see the rest of that sentence. So he doesn't get the next page from Veronica, or, or the satisfaction of understanding as a result. If Tony, that, that line, means everything, he just has to understand 
from that line that he played some role in Adrian's suicide and in the redemptive arc, he wants to apologize for whatever part he played in that suicide. It may not be all his fault, he may not have been the prime cause, but his involvement and the sense of justice that no matter what someone does, they shouldn't get away with it, there should be some acknowledgement with the promise to learn from what happened, that's all present. So the whole idea of a penal system, I guess, is really about what you want someone to go through in order to demonstrate that they have changed. And that's the ideal at the heart of it, not locking people away forever, or you know, at least it should be. The idea is that unless a crime is so shockingly grave, there's no path to redemption, some form of punishment, and then a re-entry into society. Uh, that, that's reflected in Tony here. He's learned what really happened. He was getting through his life until Sarah left this money in his will. Blood money, as Veronica calls it, but that leads him on this journey to discover the truth. And what he does with that truth is his responsibility. So arguably in the book, he doesn't do much to redeem himself, whereas in the film, he really does say, I can't believe that I've been so blind to certain things when I was younger and I'm, I'm going to try and be a better person. Um, and I, I really love how they introduced Nick Mohammed into all this as the postman. He's, <laughs> he's a great character. I think that when this was released, Nick Mohammed wasn't very well known, but now his face is a bit more familiar uh, with these two wonderful comedies he's been in recently, uh, Ted Lasso on Apple TV and Intelligence with David Schwimmer. And he's he's brilliant to both of these. And now seeing Nick Mohammed in this film, you know, really brought a smile to my face. And this is how you can show, ch the reason I bring it up is this is how you can show change on screen. It's very hard to show internal change in a person. So you, th you show it through a relationship. And so this, this is uh, an almost uh, circumstantial relationship he has. It's just the postman who delivers his, his, his post every day. And at first you see Tony is, is very rushed and he just wants to get the postman away from him as quickly as possible. But by the end of the film, he's inviting him in for a coffee, which is even more awkward for the postman because he really just does want to get a signature and get going. Uh, but you see this change, obviously, in Tony's attitude. Now he's welcomed in what he previously pushed away. And I, I just love that little inclusion. And um, I think this is the, the moral or the, the point of learning here is if Tony didn't have his daughter or the postman around him, would we be able to see that he had changed? Well, and also Margaret, because... Um and, you know, if you're going to cast a fantastic actor like Harriet Walter, then you really want to make best use of them. But uh, as we discussed uh, in the book where she says, Tony, you're on your own, he really is um, in the in the film because they need to be helping their daughter um, taking her to hospital and being with her for the birth. The two characters are thrown together can, after she says that, Tony, you're on your own, in a way that they're simply not in the book because there isn't that device, that mechanism. So, so the the three of them, as you say, those those two principal characters, Margaret and Susie, 
the postman and also his his friends are, are the ones by which you can track his sort of gradual unbending. But I think I think that thing about redemption is kind of absolutely at the heart of of the difference between the the film and the and the book. Um, the book is very much about him not being redeemed and not being able to be redeemed. The final line: there is unrest, there is great unrest. He realizes that he can't he can't make up for it now. Now you could argue, therefore, that the film maybe lets him off too lightly. I mean, I'm I would say. I suppose there's a sense that maybe Charlotte Rampling is coming around, that she'll sort of accept this. She knows that it can never be quite remotely right, but she will accept that he's doing his best. We're not sure. You know, you see her reading the letter. What you, what is certain is that he has learned his lesson. And if the, if, if the learning of the lesson is not doing the same thing again, then it doesn't let him off the hook because, in a sense, you know, he apologizes to his wife. He's there for his daughter. He's more present um, and emotionally available as a result of this. So, you know, a lesson is learnt, and it so, so happens that it's a very pleasing movie lesson that sends the audience out on a high note. But I, you know, the the, the book. I was I was just looking at the section um, in the book where he's thinking back to that that letter um, with its with its equation. He explicitly says, Tony says, I knew I couldn't change or mend anything now. You get towards the end of life, not not life itself, but of something else, the end of any likelihood of change in that life. And it's very clear he doesn't see any personal redemption for him. But, I mean, it's what's interesting about it is you could write a sequel, you know, what, what Tony did next. I'd, I'd love to read that book, I'd, I'd, but, you know, it's sort of complete in and of itself. You can write a happy ending to a novel and still it be a bit disconcerting. The, the final ending of Great Expectations, for example, is one of the most famous disconcerting happy endings in inverted commas in, in, in the whole of literature. I saw no shadow of another parting from her. Well, his original ending was not happy. I, I think one of his friends, one of Dickens's friends, said, gosh, you know, this is really not a happy ending. Can you do something else? And and they hadn't got back together, I think, in the original ending. And then the published, finally published ending, they did. But he sort of, this this hint of, I saw no shadow of another parting from her. Well, that doesn't mean there isn't going to be another parting from her. And that's a sort of digression, really. But um, you're right. Redemption, I think, is is at the heart of the difference between these two, between the book and the film of Sense of an Ending. And again, I've, I've mentioned them a lot, but they're, they're really good interviews, actually, on the DVD. Um, Nick Payne says that um, there's something Scrooge-like about Tony at the beginning of the, of the film. Um, you know, he is, he's grumpy. Um, he's, he's emotionally cut off. And, and, and the arc, so we're back to Dickens again, in fact. Um, you couldn't get a more, and maybe that's why it's been adapted again and again and again. It's a novella. Christmas Carol. Um, it has a, a perfect redemptive arc for Scrooge. He he's presented with his past. He learns from it. Maybe maybe Christmas Carol is as is as reasonable a, an equivalence or, or reference point for sense of an ending as Turn of the Screw. Because Turn of the Screw is very um, unsettling throughout. And Christmas Carol has this redemptive arc. But I can certainly see what, what Nick Payne is on about. Uh, and if that's one of the sort of things that was informing his adaptation, then you can very clearly see the sort of trajectory that, that they were 
they were aiming at, that sort of unthawing a man being presented with his past sins, realising that he doesn't want to replicate them in the future. You know, the, the amazing scene in thinking of the 1950 adaptation of Christmas Carol with Alistair Sim being presented with his own tombstone and, oh, my God, you know, I can't go down this road. If I go any further down this road, this is where it leads for me um, to loneliness and, and um, despair. Yeah, that's a really great point. And with Christmas just passed, I'm sure some of our listeners will have revisited it recently. If you want to find the perfect archetypal redemption story, it's A Christmas Carol, absolutely. Agreed. How do you show a character change and how do you show why they would choose to redeem themselves? They're confronted with their past, which they may have misremembered in some way. They take a reassessment of their present and they're warned of what can happen in the future if they don't change. With the source material of the novel, the future part of it is harder to illustrate. So... You have the introduction of the fact that Tony is about to become a grandfather. Because I think that is what allows him to see his future. He has to consider who he's going to be and what role he will play in this next stage of his life. So even though he can close the doors on some of the stuff that happened in his past, he also is looking forward to the future where there's something to look forward to that next stage of becoming a grandfather. Absolutely. And I think um, I think the way the film ends, the, the final scene, the final shot of the film is very interesting. It doesn't end with him holding the baby in his arms or then walking off into the sunset or going for a walk on Hampstead Heath. He's gone back to his photography shop, his, his daughter, and the, the penultimate scene is his daughter and grandchild are there in the shop with him. She's, she's come to visit him. And then you have this exterior shot of the, of the shop which is held for slightly longer than you might expect it to be. They're inside. You can't really, certainly on DVD, you can't really see them inside the shop. And it's just people passing. And then it sort of cuts to black and there's this beautiful score by Max Richter over it. And there is is this sort of a low-key sense of he's getting on with it now. But it's not grandstanding, I don't think. I think it stops just the right side of being of being saccharine i don't think it's saccharine i think it's um i think it's hopeful i think there's a difference between those two things Mm. i'm reminded of the ending of Locke, which is another brilliant british film and this one i think the critic david thompson calls the best british film of the 2010s he's not wrong yeah he's not uh but the ending though you've just spent all this time with Locke, but the camera just pulls out and just shows the motorway. And his car is just one of many other cars, and soon you've lost track of which one was his. And there's that same sense here, that this is just one window on a bigger street, which is part of one of the biggest cities in the world, and this entire world, how that contrasts with the internal world of the character, and the fact that there are so many of us all of us, every every single person on that street may have a story worth investigating, a story worth telling. Well, you should. Um, I could. I could do a whole other hour and a half on Locke, um, and you should. You should interview Stephen Knight, as that is a brilliant script, brilliantly directed. Um, and I would say, again, it was a film. I, I saw it at the cinema 
and I felt the same about it as I felt about Sense of an Ending, and I do feel about great character dramas, the films that, you know, are, are in my top 20. Uh, you can you can keep your Godfathers, you can keep your Apocalypse Nows. Um, I will take Remains of the Day, Shadowlands, Sense of an Ending, Month in the Country. I will take probably British small-scale literary adaptations about people I can identify with at pivotal moments in their lives. And I remember thinking as I came out of Locke, it's very rare that you see a film which changes the whole way you think about your your own life and the choices you have made and are making and could make. Because And that's a, it's a really good analogy because that is very much a film about past, present and possible future. In fact, I think if I would, if I would want to leave your listeners with one one exhortation it would be to do a double bill if if you haven't seen them or indeed even if you have because you probably won't have done them as a double bill do them as a double bill lock and sense of an ending lock first it's 75 minutes long it's perfect length and then sense of an ending because i think thematically structurally um similar period they're both you know recent british movies and they complement each other perfectly they're, they're doing similar things albeit in very different ways and they're both they're both masterpieces yes if you don't come away from that double bill uh with newfound enthusiasm for writing then you might want or to life. yes <laughs> um definitely yeah great great advice so alistair how about you just tell us uh quickly about um, some of the interviews you did in in this book, what readers can find. I'm going to put a link to the book on the podcast episode description so that people can, can find it easily. Well, probably the best way of, of, for me to, to do that is to tell you who's in the book, because uh, I'm tremendously proud of having got all these people to, to talk to me. I've always been very lucky um, in all the books I've done of the caliber of people that are willing to talk to me. And that's partly because People talk to directors and actors all the time, and even now when everyone's you know, trying to write the great screenplay, screenwriters are still generally talked to less, and so they're very, very happy and enthusiastic about talking about their work. But even so, they're busy people. So I talked to um, so each, each interview, there's 12 interviews, and each interview is divided into two sections. The first section is what I would call set questions. Um, which all the interviewees got, uh, either on non-fiction or fiction adaptations or both. And then there's a case study section of each chapter. And, and in each each case, other than one interview, I dealt with two case studies. So I interviewed Hussein Amini, and we talked about Drive and his BBC series, McMafia. I talked to Jeremy Brock, and we talked about The Last King of Scotland and Brideshead Revisited, the film version. Uh, I talked to Moira Buffini, um, and the case studies there were Tamara Drew and Jane Eyre. Uh, Lucinda Coxon talked about her BBC series, The Crimson Petal and the White, and The Danish Girl. Andrew Davis, probably screen adaptation's most prolific practitioner anywhere, he had just done so much that I didn't know how to choose just two for case studies. So w- instead, we did a kind of career retrospective interview there, a bit of a hop, skip and a jump through his greatest hits from um, Pride and Prejudice through to Les Miserables. Christopher Hampton, who was the subject of my third book, um, but I was able to talk to him about two things that he had only just written at the point that I did Hampton on Hampton and that had actually finally been made, which were Atonement and a Dangerous Method. David Hare, um, we talked about uh, The Hours and the Reader. Uh, Olivia Hetreid, 
and we talked about Girl with a Pearl Earring and Wuthering Heights. Uh, Nick Hornby, we talked about An Education and Wild. Um, Wild is another film that didn't seem to make the impact that I thought it should have done. It was a phenomenally good adaptation of non-fiction. If you want to see how to do non-fiction, Wild is about as good as it gets, I reckon. Deborah Mogic, we talked about the film version of Pride and Prejudice and a TV version of Diary of Anne Frank. David Nichols, um, one of my favourite novelists, we talked about And When Did You Last See Your Father and Patrick Melrose. And uh, Sarah Phelps, um, one of our leading TV uh, dramatists, and we talked about her TV version of Great Expectations and uh, and Then There Were None, one of several Agatha Christie's she's done. So some novelists and playwrights, several, you know, Bespoke screenwriters who, who only do screenwriting, um, British material, Hollywood material, fiction, non-fiction, modern fiction, classic fiction, real range of stuff, real range of approaches, real range of voices from, from the quite classical through to the wildly irreverent. And um, yeah, I, I just, I'm so pleased that... Um, Creative Essentials approached me. I, I did three of these books in quick succession uh, between the age of 25 and 30, and then the, the bottom kind of dropped out of the interview book Q&A market because DVD commentaries, among other things, publishing got harder and DVD commentaries came along and suddenly no one wanted these books anymore. So the Creative Essentials came to me and they were then happy to go with my my adaptation, as it were, of, of their pitch. Uh, and, and do a book on screen adaptation as an interview book was a, a huge pleasure for me. And uh, and I'm thrilled that I'm doing another one. As I say, I'm, now, I'm doing one for Penguin, book of interviews with the novelist and screenwriter William Boyd, um, which I'm, we've started via Zoom, um, um, which uh, is due to come out in his 70th birthday year in 2022. And I never thought I'd get to do another one, and I've now got to do another two. And of course, now I'm thinking, I'd like, I want to do more. Who, who, who do I want to write to and try and snag? So, yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled with it. And, and uh, I'm really grateful to all the people that were in it. Um, and if anyone listening to this has, has found our conversation the least bit uh, interesting, um, think how much more interesting a dozen of Britain's top writers are in my book. <laughs> Yeah, and the benefit of it being written down, I think, is you can highlight things or take notes, take your time with it, because the audio format, it's very good for multitasking, and you can learn while you're doing something else, but there's still something to be said for taking the time to sit down with a good book and getting fully immersed in it. So that's the art of screen adaptation, and with that, Alistair, we're finally coming to the end so i'd just like to say thanks again for suggesting this film and taking the time to prepare for this and have this uh, great conversation with me uh, it's my pleasure no it's it's uh, it's really nice to be able to talk about uh, something like this i hope i've i hope i've done it justice um i'm aware that you've talked to the writers of um scripts um quite often uh and i think nick payne did an amazing job on this one so if he ever happens to hear it um then um i hope i uh, i hope i did justice to his fantastic work absolutely all right thank you thank you very much 